As I mentioned, we're starting a new sermon series today, really talking about the stories that shape God's people. The stories that shape God's people. This may be a surprise to some who are not overly familiar with the scripture, but most of the Bible is story. Uh, We sometimes, maybe if you're not familiar with the scripture, you think most of the Bible is command. Most of the Bible is law. Do this. Don't do this. Uh, But actually, much of the story is what's called historical narrative. It's what God's people have done in the past. And in doing so, because God in his wisdom knew, knew this is what we need, we sort of learn better by relating to the people in these stories. True stories. Stories of people who really lived. But more than that, not only do we find ourselves relating to these people both in how they succeed and how they fail, by the way, we learn from their failures perhaps even more than their faithfulness, we also see the need, the the destiny of a faithful king who will eventually come. In fact, my guess is when we're done with this sermon series, I'm not sure how long it will last, you'll be crying out for a king who's worthy to be praised because nobody is worthy but him. You'll be looking forward to hearing more and more about Jesus, the true king. I remember I, was, uh, I taught through Samuel in a Bible study before. First time I've ever preached through it like this. But I taught through it. And of course, much of the book of Samuel is about David. David is considered the greatest king in Israel's history. And I remember one person in the Bible study said, I don't, I, I don't like David anymore. <laughs> they started the series liking him. They ended not liking him anymore. He is, a, in some ways, a wretched man, as we will see. And it just points us to our need of a Savior who is worthy, a king who is a true king. It points us to Jesus. But this book, Samuel, starts, by the way, it was originally one book. We broke it into First and Second Samuel. That happened uh, really as it was translated in the Septuagint to the Greek. But it was originally one book. Um, starts with a, a fairly little-known woman named Hannah. And what we see here is a call to trust in the Lord through trials, to hope in the Lord even in hard times. Now, it would be one thing if God just said, Hope in the Lord in hard times, right? (laughs) Straightforward, we get it, that's what he's saying. It's something different when we see that truth embodied in the life of real people going through real struggles with a real hope in God. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1, we'll have it on the screen, uh, verses 1 through 20. So we're going to start the book in the very beginning of the book. We won't cover every verse in uh, the entire first and second Samuel, uh, but we'll cover major sections and I'm going to have some help. I know Mitch is set to do a sermon coming up here pretty soon and we'll probably have some others, but we're going to start here in the very beginning, verses 1 through 20. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, 
and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you, made, you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the study of his word this morning. We're to hope in the Lord through trials. Uh, by the way, Hannah, this is completely irrelevant to interpreting the passage, but Hannah is a palindrome, right? It can be, you could take the letters and switch it backwards and it would still be the same name. So all of my points here begin with H. I don't usually do that here, but uh, first that Hannah is hurting, then Hannah is hoping, Hannah is harassed, and then Hannah is helped. That's where we're going here this morning. But first, we see that Hannah is a hurting young woman. She is married to a man named Elkanah. He was probably a fairly wealthy man. We see that by his resources, the fact that he's able to travel there to Shiloh every year. He has a lineage. He's probably a fairly prominent person. And we learn that he has two wives, which, of course, hits our ears very strangely. Um, there, is, there are a, a handful of examples of polygamy in the Bible. Uh, there are none in the New Testament. It is completely condemned. It is actually a restriction against anyone in church leadership. But we see in the Old Testament there are a handful of examples. And I would say that in every one of them, it's not good. Okay, In every example in which there is a polygamous relationship, it is not presented as a good and healthy situation. Uh, in every situation, there are issues of jealousy and manipulation, um, and things don't typically end well in those relationships here. 
Most likely, however, Hannah was his first wife. We know that because she's mentioned first. She is infertile, unable to have children. So Elkanah most likely, after some time, decided to take a second wife, Penina, in order to produce children for his inheritance. Year after year, they go to Shiloh and where the tabernacle is. The tabernacle at this point is not a building, it's more like a tent. It may be a semi-permanent structure there. Uh, It's where the Ark of the Covenant is, which is what basically a a box (laughs) uh, that had the uh, the Ten Commandments in it, the staff of Aaron, and some manna. Um, But it was more like a seat, a throne for God. You don't have any images of God himself, but that's his sort of throne. Wherever the box is, is in a sense a representation of the presence of God. And people went to Shiloh to worship, to offer sacrifices, to see the priests. Well there, Penina uses that opportunity in particular to provoke Hannah, to pick on her, to remind her of her barrenness, to remind her of her failure to produce children for her husband. And this, of course, is a source of great pain for Hannah. Joyce Baldwin, a theologian, said this, the family feast which followed the sacrifice was the culmination of this pilgrimage. Penina regularly chose this moment to score points over Hannah. The merry chatter of Penina's children enjoying their portions would be reminder enough of Hannah's isolation. Without additional taunts and innuendos, invariably Hannah was reduced to tears and, and left her meal uneaten. She would weep. She would fast. One little bright spot is Elkanah seems to be somewhat sensitive here. Uh, when they passed out food, so the sacrifice, by the way, part would go to the priest, part would be burned up to the Lord, part you could eat. But the part that he would offer to his family, he would give Hannah twice the amount because he loved her. Of course, I think this is uh, the sort of blinders that, that, that husbands have on when he says to her, but Hannah, aren't I worth more than you than ten sons? Right? No, he just doesn't get it. Right? <laughs> That's how we think, I think, in some ways as husbands, it, it doesn't work. Right? We get the idea. But Hannah is going through a hard time. There is, of course, a lot of cultural shame, particularly at that time, that comes with infertility. Thankfully, that's changed to a large degree, though certainly uh, those who have struggled with infertility in their marriage might tell a different story. But not only is there cultural shame that surrounds the inability for her to produce children, she wants a child. Forget the cultural shame, her dreams are crushed. She wants to hold a baby in her arms. She wants to have a family with the husband that she loves. You add to that the competition with Penina and all of the heartache that that's producing. God created us one man, one male, one female, till death do us part. And here, the addition of a third person in this marriage has just created chaos. Maybe we can relate to Hannah. Certainly many can relate to Hannah's very specific pain here. Uh, Infertility is still a major struggle. According to the CDC, about 6% of married women from ages 15 to 44 
in the U.S. are unable to get pregnant after a year of trying. About 12% of women aged 15 to 44 in the United States have difficulty getting pregnant or carrying a pregnancy to term. Numerous problems can cause this, problems with ovaries or fallopian tubes or the uterus. And of course, this isn't just females. In this case, it is because we see here that her husband does have children with penina, but in many, in 8% of couples, um, they, there is a struggle in which the male is the identifiable factor. 9% of men, 25 to 44, report they have, they or their partner, saw a doctor for advice or testing or treatment. And it's a struggle that many people today have faced as well. It's broader than that. You can see here the sort of emotional and verbal abuse that she is facing from her own family. The manipulation, the jealousy, the attacks. Many of us can relate to that. On top of that, we can see clearly a depression here. She is just weeping bitterly. She says herself that she struggles with anxiety the weight of the world on her shoulders with loneliness as if you can imagine her her uh, husband is enjoying his children as he should in some ways with his second wife where does Hannah feel she feels completely isolated and alone she is vexed as she says as well she is frustrated no one understands and God is not hearing my prayers Friends, as Christians, we know something that Hannah doesn't know, that God knows her suffering. It's one of the unique and most powerful aspects of the Christian faith is we have a high priest in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who knows our suffering. Not only does he see it, he knows it. You say, well, God has infinite knowledge. He knows everything. But more than that, he has experienced it in his Son. He knows what it means to physically suffer, to be isolated and to be abandoned, to be vexed and to feel the weight of the world on his shoulders. So what does Hannah do? Verses 9 through 11. Hannah is not only hurting, Hannah is hoping. She is hoping. She hasn't given up faith. She rises up after dinner and she goes to the temple alone. That's why they went there. They went there to worship. But Hannah, as all of her family, is sort of celebrating. She just goes by herself. Says she goes to the doorpost of the tabernacle, uh, which is a sort of a, a portion on the outside of the tabernacle area, and she gets alone with God. And in her deep distress, she prays, she weeps. She just lets it all out to the Lord of hosts. Actually, we learn... Um, you wouldn't know this just from reading it here, but from the commentary, this is the first time that term, Lord of hosts, is used in Scripture. It's used all over the Bible, but this is the first time it's used. And it means basically the Lord of the armies of heaven, uh, the all-powerful God. And so she's saying, in a sense, to God, you're all-powerful. You're almighty. You're the Lord who has at his command the hosts of heaven. Hear my prayer. And she makes a vow to the Lord. Uh, By the way, be careful making vows. (laughs) Uh, We'll learn that later on, I think, in Samuel as well. Usually not a good idea to make a vow to God. I'll just say that, okay? Um, Make a vow to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. Make a vow. If you're married, make a vow to your wife. Don't make too many other vows besides that, okay? Just not a good idea because we find ourselves sometimes in an awkward place needing to break that vow at times. But her vow is actually a pretty common one. It's called the Nazarite vow. 
And what she says here is, Lord, if you see my affliction, if you remember me in the midst of my pain, if you hear my prayer and give me a son, then he's yours. He will serve you all of his days. I will make sure of it. And there's that little awkward phrase that no razor will touch his head. <laughs> it's referring to the Nazarite vow. As I mentioned, there are three sort of uh, commands surrounding this vow. Uh, one, you're not allowed to drink from the fruit of the vine, so no alcohol, no wine. Um, you weren't allowed to touch a dead body, and you were not allowed to cut your hair. Uh, that may sound strange to our ears. Probably the most common Nazarite vow we know of is Samson with his long hair, right? And what did Samson do in his own life? He touched a dead lion, he got drunk, and, and the very last thing is he breaks the Nazarite vow by telling his sort of uh, wife there to go ahead and cut his hair and then the blessing of the Lord is removed. But here we see Samuel. Oh, I just gave it away. Who he is. Let's see, we see Hannah promising that her child would be devoted to the Lord and under the Nazarite vow. But don't give in to despair. It's so easy to say to God, and maybe even to the world, to everyone, forget it. I don't care. Nothing matters anymore. I give up. Instead, she gets alone with God and pours out her soul. You ever do that? I wonder if we need to do that more often, friends. She hasn't given up on the hope that God can do something. It's really more of a question of his will. And that she pleads that he would answer and if it happens, Lord, if you do this, if you show yourself to me in this way, he's yours. Friends, I would just encourage you in the same way. Hannah rises here as a great model of faithfulness. Keep hoping. If you're hurting right now, do not give in to despair. <laughs> Don't give in to despair. Satan has this tool that he loves to use, and it's despair, where we feel like it is completely hopeless. But it's never hopeless for God's people. Uh, many of you guys are familiar with the story of Pilgrim's Progress, one of my favorite books written by uh, John Bunyan. But it was one point where Christian gets captured by a man named Giant Despair. He's literally a giant in the story. And he captures him and he takes him to his own home, which is called Doubting Castle. Uh, Bunyan made it pretty clear what he was talking about. He didn't, he didn't hide his symbols too well. That there's a time in the Christian life, perhaps, when we get captured by despair and entrapped and imprisoned in our doubts. Be careful. Hope that God can certainly answer your prayers and will answer it in his timing. Doesn't mean you always get what you want, but he hears and he answers prayer. In fact, friends, we have an even fuller hope than Hannah had. We know that there is, in the end, true and full cosmic justice God will right all wrongs. God who sees everything and knows everything will make all that is wrong right. I'm watching the uh, Derek Chauvin case this week, off and on, and uh, you have, you know, I'm not going to get into sort of all the details here, but it's interesting. You have, the, of course, the prosecution makes their best sort of uh, the case. The defense comes and makes another case, and uh, all these different factors play into it, and the jury is now going to meet on Monday and, be, and have to decide on this, and who knows what they're going to decide. They might get it wrong in whatever direction that is. But in the end, friends, our hope is not that there will be perfect justice in this world. 
but that in the end, God will bring about true and cosmic justice. Our hope is in him. Before we get to the answer to this prayer, one little section here, 12 to 18, Hannah is harassed. Hannah is harassed. Uh, She's not quite alone as she thought. Eli, we'll learn more about him later on, but Eli, who is the high priest at this time, he has two sons. We learn about them, just their names at this point, Hophni and Phinehas. Um, He is sitting there at the tabernacle in his sort of chair. And he sees her over there as she's praying. He sees that her lips are moving, but no words are coming out. So he runs to the the idea that she must be drunk. (laughs) She must be intoxicated and just babbling nonsense. Um, And he goes up to her and immediately confronts her and says, how long are you going to go on drinking? Put your wine away. And her response is, no, no, sir. I'm pouring out my soul to God. Don't take me as, as literally a daughter of Belial. Uh, Belial later on became a, a term for the devil. But earlier on, this is 1,000 years B.C., this is pretty early on, most likely just means, again, as, she, as, as the, a lot of translations have it, a foolish woman, a worthless woman. When she explains the real situation, Eli is quick to receive that. He believes her. He wishes her well. Go in peace, and may God grant you your petition. Eli, we'll just talk a little bit about him here. He's a, he's a very mixed character. <laughs> and I like mixed characters because that's everyone, really, right? Where no one is fully, entirely evil. And nobody is fully, entirely good, except Jesus. <laughs> so there's no, all of us are in some mixture here. It would be easy to look at Eli here and say he is a total failure as a high priest and his sons are bad men, and we'll see that later on. But you might actually find yourself relating more to Eli than you think, than we think. Uh, we'll see about that. But doesn't this say something, first of all, about the state of Israel at this time? That, that it's so rare for someone to be in the temple just praying that he runs to the fact that she's probably a public drunk. That's not a good thing. I mean, was it common to have a lot of public drunks hanging around the temple? I don't know. Uh, We do learn from the fuller picture of Samuel, these were not good days in Israel. This was a time in which they were not walking closely with the Lord. We also learn something about Eli. I mean, he's supposed to be the high priest. He's supposed to be the spiritual leader of Israel, and he seems so dull. (laughs) I mean, he misses the fact that she's pouring out her heart to the Lord. Let's just say this at this point, he's no Jesus when it comes to being high priest. Let me just make an application here, though. How others treat us when we go through trials matters. You know, maybe someone you know is going through something and, and you, know, you can't relate to it, so our, our first sort of reaction is to, to throw more blame on top of it. Well, you got yourself into this situation. It's partly your fault that you're doing what you're doing. I mean, you can imagine poor Hannah, right? I mean, the whole, whole weight of the world's on her. She's just been weeping, crying out. And now the high priest walks over and thinks she's a drunk? <laughs> I mean, she must be like, really? How bad can this get? Maybe we could learn from Eli to be a little slower to speak, <laughs> a little slower to judge one another, a little more quick to listen, to understand what other people are going through. But actually... Eli also works as a bit of a good example for us, too. 
Because in the end, he's quick to hear the truth and, re- and respond, not, not sort of dig his heels in. And he wishes her the best. He's teachable. And he says, may the Lord grant your petition. And actually, that cheers her up. She goes back, she eats, and she's no longer sad. <laughs> she sees that in some ways as a, as a real encouragement. The high priest himself met me and told me, may the Lord grant your petition. Let's be more like the second part of Eli as we seek to encourage one another through trials. And then this fourth section, Hannah is helped. Hannah is helped. The story ends in happiness, thankfully. Uh, The family rises early and they go to worship the Lord. So Elkanah, if nothing else, does seem to lead his family in the worship of the Lord. And then they head home. It says Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. Uh, By the way, um, Knowledge doesn't always mean head knowledge. That, that Hebrew word yada, to know, uh, means sometimes a more intimate knowledge. Uh, clearly, in this case, that's the, case, that's the situation. Elkanah knew his wife, and she gets pregnant. So it's not just a head knowledge. There's something more to it than that. Um, again, revealing here that Elkanah loves his wife, Hannah. He feels her pain. He cares about her. This isn't a virgin birth. We'll see later on in the Bible and Mary. But God still opens the womb here. The Lord remembers her. She conceives. She gives birth to a son. And she names him Samuel. Which means the name of God, literally. And is, of course, the name of this book. And one of the most important characters in Israel's history. God offers her help. Not not every prayer works this way. You might pray for something for years and years and years. And by the way, God calls us to persistent prayer. Uh, There is that ongoing prayer that we might have for years and years and years before God answers. And sometimes we might never receive what we asked. And yet still it's good for us. We, We see this sometimes better in hindsight. I can definitely look back in my life and say, God, thank you so much for not giving me what I asked. (laughs) If you had given me what I asked back then, that would have been a bad thing. It would have taken my life in a different direction, and I'm so grateful that your answer was no. (laughs) We can sometimes see that in hindsight. Sometimes we have to wait until heaven. But yes, God most certainly uses prayer to work out his will. There is undoubtedly a direct connection between Hannah's pouring out her soul before the Lord in the tabernacle and this answer to prayer. As the New Testament says, you do not have because you do not ask God. There are things we don't have because we didn't ask for them. We didn't pray for them. Or powerful and effective is the prayer of a righteous person. Elijah's mentioned, he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it stopped raining. He prayed that it would rain and it started raining. There is power to our prayers. And God hears her prayer and offers help. Friends, I would just say keep hoping in the Lord who helps us. What trials are you facing right now? And some of you guys say, well, honestly, nothing, Pastor Rick. I would say that's great, but hang on. (laughs) Hang on, because life changes quickly, doesn't it? Whatever you're facing, keep hoping in the Lord. He is our helper. By the way, that's a term used of God for Israel throughout the Old Testament. He is the helper of Israel. Continue to pour out your soul before him and see what happens. 
I love it in the book of Corinthians. It says that the kingdom is about power, not talk. And I find that to be completely true. Uh, there is real, true power in the Christian life. Power that changes lives. I've seen prayers answered in powerful ways, friends. It, there, this is not just about this set of beliefs that we take as a religion, as Christians. <laughs> there is the absolute power of the Spirit of God who hears our requests, who answers, who shapes our lives. And friends, what is the gospel but hoping in the Lord and empowered as we are forgiven and transformed into the image of Christ. We need a Savior. We're broken. We're sinful. And God saves us through his Son, Jesus. And we put our hope, all of our hope, in him as Savior and Lord. Friends, hope in the Lord through hard times, through trials. Those who know Christ here, we know this, or we should. (laughs) But it's one thing to hear it again and again. It's another thing to see it embodied in a story. And the little young Jewish woman who lived 3,000 years ago, who was hurting, whom we can relate to, and puts her hope in the Lord. As I mentioned, these are the early days of Israel. And certainly we can see how so much of this story points us to Jesus. The sacrifices that are offered point us to the sacrifice of Christ himself outside of Jerusalem. The tabernacle, which represents the dwelling place of God, points us to Jesus as the dwelling of God with men in flesh. The priests point us to the need for that true and perfect high priest. But in this story, I think what points us most forward, most points to Jesus most clearly, is Hannah's hope. Her recognition that we live in a broken world, full of pain, and her need that God would come and fix it. About a thousand years later, another young woman would put her hope in God and bring into this world the true high priest, the true sacrifice the true dwelling of God with men, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we do thank you so much for your word, which is true, but more than true, it is inspired and it is powerful and effective to shape and mold our faith. Lord, there are a lot of folks in our church going through some hard time and that might be a major physical ailment right now or someone in their family has cancer or is struggling with something of great impact it may be something else it may be feeling that isolation that loneliness or that anxiety that weight of the world that fear Lord let us put our hope in you let's put our trust in in the living God, the Lord of hosts, who is our helper and who has provided us a deliverer in Jesus. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.